Hi, Julie. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. I'm cold, though. I miss our mild weather. I know. It's, it suddenly got very cold this week, and the wind is, is, is increasing, and I hear it every morning when I'm waking up super early for my run, and it's just not very inviting. You know, it's January, so I feel like, you know, we got kind of lucky, but still don't love it. You know, both of us don't love running in this freezing cold weather. No, I would take an 80-degree day any time, and I know you would too. Yes, we would. But that's okay because we're going to talk about weathering the storm and all things weather in this podcast and probably several others too. Um, so first of all, we have some exciting news. Lisa, I don't know if you realize this, but today we just had our 100th download of our first episode. So thank you, everyone, who listen this week. We're, we're pretty shocked that we have a hundred downloads and that's exciting for us because it means that we'll keep doing it. Yeah. If you like listening to us, uh, you know, I think there are so many people getting ready for Boston or some people who are just doing their first Boston or people even who may not be doing Boston, but like to hear, you know, what it's like to train. And so much of what we talk about is applicable to, any training for any distance or just even running in general. So, or life. So I think really, uh, you know, we love feedback. So we've gotten a lot of emails and messages through social media. So keep letting us know what, what you want to hear, what you like, great constructive criticism. We won't take it personally, you know, who you want to hear on our podcast. Cause we've got a lineup of some great people we're going to be talking to and bringing in and we'd love to include more. Absolutely. So um, we're working on the sound. Hopefully this is a bit better than our first episode, but it's a work in progress, just like training. And hopefully with experience, we'll get better and better at this. Um, So what we wanted to touch on this week, it's the second official week of Boston training for many of us here. And while many Boston training programs start in December, most people seem to kick it off in early January. And we're now in the second week of January, 2019. And Lisa, how is your training going? It's going, you know, just day by day. Uh, Trying to get in the runs. My big challenge starting now this week and heading into this month is work. I uh, do some work. Luckily, I'm fortunate to work from home, but I work on on a document imaging project that goes throughout the year, but a very big portion of it, February and March every year. So that always is at the critical Boston training time where I have to balance having a lot of extra work and getting in my run so that um, this week is just seems to be this, the project's kicking off. I'm getting all of the documents coming in this week and getting the logistics set up. So just balancing that on top of all the other work that we do as coaches and teaching cycling classes. So in and out of the house a lot and not really having a lot of time to sit down and, um, plan out my training and also just uh, balancing the training with teaching classes, with getting enough sleep and trying to get all this work done and the kids and all of that stuff. So that's probably my big challenge just because looking ahead and knowing that this big project is coming in and it's going to take up a lot of my time over the next probably eight to 10 weeks and trying to balance that. How do you, how do you find that running impacts, um, your other stuff. So for example, I'm listening to what you just shared and it's very overwhelming to me, but I also know you and I know that 
running balances you. So, so what changes in your training when you have this big document project? Does it affect your training and how? Well, I think even more than that, like I, the balancing it with um, teaching classes and with the work, but the, the trying to get everything in without overdoing it um, and without burning the candle at both ends is really the key for me. So uh, the running absolutely keeps me grounded and keeps me focused. If I can get in my run in the morning, I can go through my head, everything that needs to be done. I feel like I get myself organized, like, okay, this is what I need to get done today. This is when I'm going to get it done. I'm going to get home. I'm going to, you know, crank out a couple hours. I am so much more productive. And I think you're probably the same way. After I get in a run, I can come home and get into my work. And I'm super, super productive. Uh, If I don't get in my run, I'm kind of like willy nilly and my mind's wandering. And I feel like it really focuses me. So, um, so that's part of it. The other part for me is, you know, with teaching classes, cycling classes, I really have to make sure I don't overdo it and don't ignore. And this goes for when, you know, we coach runners too. And used to be that we'd coach runners and run, you know, we did a half marathon training program where we'd run pretty long distances in when training runners and, you know, not, not forgetting that that is a strain on our body. So it's easy to think, well, I just taught a class. Okay. I can still go do my normal run. But for me, I've learned that I can scale back my running a little bit and, um, and use the, the teaching classes as cross training that supplements my running. So I don't have to run. If I was going to run an eight mile run, I may teach a class and then run a four mile run. And that is just fine for me. So I have to be careful that I don't overdo it. So that's sort of my, my challenge is not overdoing it and not burning the candle at both ends. So. Okay. Well that, that's actually a really nice, I like that you do that because cross training is a really great, um, component of any training program, but it needs to be used properly. So what you're saying is that when you teach, for example, a 45 minute cycling class, you kind of count that is four miles and then I you count it, run yeah. another four miles and you kind of count that as your eight mile run on, let's say a random Friday on your schedule. Is that right? And sense? I, yeah. I think okay. of it as, I'm, I think of it as more aerobic development. Like I'm in my aerobic heart rate while I'm teaching a class. And if I know I have a race coming up or if I know I've got a particularly long run over the weekend, then I'll dial it back in a class. I may not be off the bike more. I may not, you know, be as active during the class, but I do, I think of it as aerobic development. I know too, like cross training has been really key for you, even in, you know, several years ago through injury. Um, I think that's another important aspect of cross training is that you can use it, you know, to avoid injury, but also if you have to take a little step back, Uh, so, you know, maybe you can talk a little bit about how you use cross training and especially how it came into play when you were injured a few years ago. Yeah. So, um, in 2015, I tore my Achilles. It was not a, uh, a tear that required surgery, thank goodness, but it was a a tear in two places and it sidelined me for Boston that year. And, um, I really took a liking to the cycling, indoor cycling, because I felt that it got a lot of blood flow to my injured area. The Achilles is typically an area that doesn't get a lot of blood flow because of its placement. And um, literally the Achilles heel of injury is the Achilles. And I found sort of by accident that getting on a cycling, on a spin bike and just um, gently cycling got blood flow to the area and promoted healing. And that sort of morphed into me taking more cycling classes and aerobically it really worked because after I was given the clearance to run after uh, four months of not running, I started out with walk, run, 
um, in May. And by early September, I decided on a whim to run the last chance to be Q race, which we can talk more about in another podcast right outside of Chicago. And I qualified for Boston 2016 by just running my LSD pace, which was a lot for me at that time because I didn't have a huge running base. I think I did maybe one 16 miler um, before the race, but I had all this aerobic development from cycling and I was pretty fit um, just from doing that. Now, normally I would never advise runners to train on their bikes for a run. Or an elliptical. But in, <laughs> no, or an elliptical. Exactly. Referencing our last episode, a story you shared. But um, it worked and it made me realize that cross-training really does um, not only help uh prevent injury, but it also promotes healing if done correctly. And while certainly not a substitute for running, I'm not going to get faster as a runner by cycling. It's keeping me healthier. So I can run faster on those harder days. So that's, that's how I use it. I try and cycle in my training schedule once or twice a week. Um, It depends on the week and kind of what's going on, but I really, I really find it valuable. And uh, I'll take any cycling class, but my preference, just because it kind of works with my schedule, and I really love the bikes there, is I really love um, Zango Cycling, which is kind of similar to Soul Cycle for those who don't live in the D.C. area. And it's great. And uh, I just find that it, it helps me with cross-training. But I, I'll take any class. I don't belong to the gyms where you teach, Lisa, of course. I, I know. Take it's going to take my class. Yeah. Well, I like that's what I like about our class. My class, one of the classes I teach is, it's um, based on principles of training specific to cycling, but it's the same that we follow in running. So we spend a good 12 weeks building an aerobic base, and then we work on efficiency and technique, and then we work on VO2 max and strength and power. So I like that it's the same principles. And we encourage our runners that we coach to take some sort to do some sort of cross training. And a lot of times I know we'll put one day a week in instead of maybe an extra run, we'll put in a day of you know, cycling or swimming or elliptical or something that's, you know, I think that's important too to um, talk about the difference between cross training and complementary training. So cross training to me, in my mind, is something that's aerobic. It's getting your heart rate into your aerobic zone, building your aerobic endurance without the impact of running. So it could be the elliptical, it could be cycling, it could be um, swimming, even the rowing machine, which can be aerobic as well, um, versus complementary, which is like yoga, Pilates, strength training. Training. So that's complementary to running, but it's not necessarily building your aerobic base. So that's a, another distinction that I think, you know, and we make with our runners who a lot of times will say, hey, can I do a yoga day in place of this cross training day? We say, well, that's great. And yoga's awesome for flexibility and strength. And strength. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, but if, if we're trying to get some aerobic development, then we want some sort of aerobic effort. Also, you know, and we talk about this a lot too, making sure it's not too high intensity because we have some some runners or, you know, even us ourselves sometimes if we decide to do some cross training can make the mistake of going all out and really hitting a hard – some cross training can be super hard uh, and really high intensity and take just as much recovery as a – speed work or a long run. And then if we try to sandwich that in between runs where it's supposed to be a recovery day, aerobic recovery, then we can run into the problem of, you know, of not having enough recovery time. You're so right. That reminds me of a story um, when Orange Theory first opened in our area. I love, I love Orange Theory. I love the workouts. And I was trying to sort of incorporate 
the workouts as cross training by, or a low impact day rather by kind of not running as hard on the intervals on the treadmill during the orange theory workout and really focusing my efforts on the TRX and weights, um, which is the other component of an orange theory workout. And I quickly realized it just doesn't work with marathon training. Um, if, if we have runners who love orange theory and we have many that do, we try to incorporate it for them as cross training, but we ask them to either walk on an incline for the treadmill portion of the, of the workout or use an elliptical at orange theory if that's available or a bike, because doing the workouts there and trying to run easy, even though it's combined with weights, it, it is not cross training and it's not exactly strength training either a lot because the strength workouts aren't necessarily specific to a marathoner. So it's really tricky to fit that in. And that's a one example of being careful. And if you want to do Orange Theory, that's a great option, but it's just really working it out so that it fits and either complements the training program or is cross true cross training. And I was just going to say that like another thing that we see a lot, sorry to interrupt, is when you read an article about cross training and straight training, do you ever notice that writers sort of intermix the two terms, not realizing that they're distinct? Yeah. Do you ever notice yeah. that? Okay, I think go it's, ahead. No, it's just, I was going to say the same thing. It's confusing to a lot of people and, and, and especially a lot of runners that we are friends with or that we coach have a routine already. They like doing CrossFit or Orange Theory, and those are all great programs and particularly for the strength portion of that, where I think you're getting really good functional strength. And a lot of us find, I know I personally have such a hard time fitting in strength or being motivated to fit in strength because I'm running, I'm, you know, done running. I'm going to try to do some stretching, uh, but I got to quick take a shower and get on to the next part of my day. I'm teaching a cycling class. I'm running out of there to get on to the next part of my day. And I think for a lot of us, it's hard to get in. So those programs are really good structured ways to get in the strength. It's just that we've got to be careful uh, and, and watch that we've, still got enough recovery time in between hard workouts. So I, I think you're right. A lot of people confuse them in their heads and think, okay, well, you know, this is cross training or this is uh, strength training, but it may be the other way around and you may be getting too much. You may not be getting the right thing. So especially, and what you said is really key, especially with marathon training, I think runners who are just running for fitness or maybe you're going to do a 5k or 10k can get away with usually running two or three days a week and then incorporating some harder cross training workouts into their schedule. But once you get up to the half marathon and marathon distance, I know we ask a lot of our runners just temporarily during the last couple of months of marathon training to pull back on that other training just so that they can focus on the running and on the recovery. Yes. I think, I think you're spot on. I actually made a mistake yesterday myself. I mean, we're, we're early into training, so it's, it's a forgivable mistake at this point. We're only in week two, but I do a lot of strength training for my, I do try to get to prime fitness, which is a local um, gym that I belong to that has a lot of TRX. And I really love TRX for runners. We both do. It's just a really nice compliment um, to running and it's strength training, but it's not too hard on the joints and the muscles. And usually the workouts are, are really complementary to running and they work well generally with my training. And there was this surprise workout yesterday. It seriously, my quads are on <laughs> fire today. And I, I was like, oh, I can do this. And I should have just stopped and just done something else. But, you know, you're in a class, you don't want to bring attention to yourself and you're just like, oh, it's only 20 minutes. How bad can it be? It was 
It was horrible. It was a hundred mountain <gasps> climbers. Okay. Let me go through it. A hundred mountain climbers followed by 50 push-ups, followed by 50 squats. Oh my gosh. 50 alternating lunges backwards, 50 alternating lunges forwards, then squat thrusts, which are basically burpees, but you just don't like it. You're missing the push-up in the middle of it. And then I think at the end, it culminated with 25 uh, TRX low rows. And you had to do it as quickly as you can, sort of like a WOD or a WOD in CrossFit. You had to do it as quickly as you, you can. They timed you and it was sort of like a baseline for your fitness. And then you can try this workout again in a couple of weeks and see how your strength has progressed. It was not the right workout for this <laughs> um, person here. And, uh, but I was like, oh, I'm just going to finish it. I finished it. I was winded, but I felt like, oh, I got through it. I, I did okay. And, um, yeah, so the middle of the night last night, I woke up, my quads were burning, like as if I ran a marathon. And then I got on the Metro this morning to go to work. I'm, I'm currently an unpaid government worker. Um, um, thanks to the shutdown, I'm still going. And I walked down the escalator and, and I had that feeling running know, a marathon downstairs after a marathon. Yeah. So I made the very mistake we're talking about. I just let the workout sort of run me instead of me running the workout and lesson learned. I need to pull back. I'm in this training now and I need to, you know, suck it up and, and check my ego at the door and say, you know what, Julie, I, this is not the time to do that. And I should have walked away from it and done something on my own. Right. I think it's hard, especially in a group setting and especially for people totally. like us that are, you know, competitive and want to, want to we're perfectionists. You know, if you give us an assignment, we're yeah. going to do it. And, and that's, that's exactly. another aspect of group fitness is great and it's so encouraging and it's, you know, it's motivating and, uh, all of that, but we have to be careful that, uh, you know, our competitive sides, we keep them in check so that, um, we, we are realistic and know what we can handle. And like you said it's early training now is a, is a better time to make that mistake than when we're getting up to our, you know, really high mileage week. So, you know, lesson learned, <laughs> move on. Lesson learned. Yes. Exactly. So um, earlier I was asking you what your challenges are for fitting in in this week. And you mentioned that you've got a big, uh, a, a big work project. And then you, of course, have to fit in your side, your side gigs um, to our side gig, which is the cycling classes and the kids and all of that. And um, I too, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit overwhelmed as well this week because uh, my daughter for the first time is on this um, competitive dance team, which requires me to be present in um, places out of town a few weekends over the course of this training cycle. So this weekend's the first competition and I will not be able to do a long run on Saturday or Sunday. So I have to once again, reconfigure my schedule and I'm going to do my long run tomorrow again. And both of us did our long runs Thursday last week, but I have to do it really early tomorrow because it's a work day for me and blah, blah, blah. But it's going to be so cold and windy and windy. Yeah. And windy. But I realized that this is the exact weather that, I mean, this is the perfect weather to run in because it really underlines that if you can run through wind in training on race day, which inevitably will be, have some type of wind to it. It always does. You're just that much more prepared, prepared. So my 
sort of thought process, this training cycle is rather than dreading the win, because I hate win, I, I'm going to embrace the suck. I'm going to embrace the win because the more running I do through win, then the bigger badass I'm going to be on race day and get through it. And in the past, when it's really windy, I mean, I still get through it, but my attitude is a little bit more like, oh God, I hate this win. I hate this win. Just get me through this win. And I'm going to try a new mindset with my run tomorrow, I'll let you know how it goes where I'm going to say, this is good practice. This is good practice. And I'm inspired by Des because I remember her saying after Boston last year that she really felt like she had a huge advantage on race day because she raced in the same weather that she trained in. And that weather last year was so bad. So I cannot even imagine how bad her training runs were in Michigan. I love that. I think that's great because, you know, you know, I, do not like training in the winter. And I mentioned on our last podcast, the first year I trained for Boston, I had to train through the winter. I ended up resorting to a, a, an elliptical because I didn't want to go outside. I now dread being inside. I, you know, both of us do not enjoy, most runners don't enjoy the treadmill. Um, it's definitely a necessity if there is ice outside and it looks like Sunday. It's a good thing you're going to get in your long run early. I'm going to get mine in tomorrow too, but not quite as early as you. I'm going to get it in a... Oh, darn. One day I we'll think it out. I know. I have to be home by <laughs> six in the morning though to get my kids up. So I would yeah. have to leave like four in the morning and I'm just going to be no. <laughs> going to get it in a little bit later. But um, Sunday looks snowy here and icy. So, you know, in those cases that the treadmill is, is really, you know, if you've got to get in your run, really the safest, the safest option. But, but you're right. You know, you never know. That is the big wild card in Boston. And it's every, we start checking the, the weather 10 days out, even though we know we shouldn't. Um, but it's always a big wild card. And we've had everything. We've had the 86 degree year. And that is, hard because we don't train in anything close to that through January, February, March. Nobody's ready for that unless you live in the Southern Hemisphere or you live in maybe in Florida or or Southern California. We're really not prepared for that. Um, So that's hard. And then last year was really sort of what I always said was my nightmare weather. I really not liking the cold and not liking the wind and not liking the rain had that perfect trifecta. And I always said, well, if I go to Boston and weather, you know, is going to be cold or windy or rainy, uh, I'll probably just sleep in and skip it. And of course we all know we're not going to do that after we make it to Boston, but, but that was, that was last year. So I think that's a great mindset. And especially having experienced both of its experience last year, now going out and saying, this is making me tougher. And, and really, I think both of us came back from Boston last year thinking if we did that, there is not, there is nothing we can't do. We, we can do anything. Um, I think it gave us both a sense of, of, you know, this is not bad. You know, we've had a lot of rain this year, a ton of rain. And every time we go out for a rainy run or a rainy race, I always think in my head, well, it's not as bad as Boston. So, uh, Correct. Yeah, I think it made us a little bit tougher. And I think that's really an important point. And we do get a lot of our runners who ask, you know, should I run on the treadmill tomorrow? It's going to be really cold. Should I run on the treadmill tomorrow? It's going to be rainy. And we always tell them if it, as long as it's not icy or dangerous out, get outside. The hardest part is just that first step outside. Once you get warmed up, it really, uh, you know, as long as you're dressed properly, it's, it's, it's good to have that experience and then know in the back of your head, I've done this before. I, you know, if I go to Boston and it's freezing cold, if I go to Boston and it's raining, I've done this before. So I think that's a great, a great attitude. Look at it as part of the training. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I hope it, I'll let you know how it goes. Yeah. Um, so what are your challenges, um, for this week? So you mentioned your challenges for 
the week we're in. What about for next week? What's, oh, what's I going on with even, you for next week? Looking I ahead. haven't even thought ahead to next week yet. So okay. um, I kind of take it week by week. Uh, you know, I'm excited. Okay. We have our group run on uh, the 19th, which is a local yeah. run here in our area from uh, the new Lululemon in Gaithersburg. And we're fortunate enough to be their run ambassadors. So we're excited we did. Speaking of weather, we did a group run, our first group run last month, and it turned out to be a pouring rainy cool day and we thought is anybody going to show up and we had about 40 runners so if we get a nice day this awesome. time those were they were all badass runners the lesson learned from that was bring a dry change of clothes for after because that's when you're going to feel it so you know yeah. bring a dry change of clothes everyone who brought a dry change of clothes was comfortable afterwards um so hopefully we'll have good weather but that's not so much a challenge but something I'll keep in mind for next uh, next week uh, will be that we have that group run um, and, and some we have personally some family commitments that we have that weekend. So, you know, it's always thinking ahead when I start the beginning of the week of what do I have going on this week? What are we going to have to plan around? And, you know, even though that run that we have, our group run is a short, casual run, it, it's a run for us and it's getting in some miles. So, uh, so I'll have to incorporate that into my training. What about, what about you? You've got, you've got a target race come, you've got a kind of a tune up race coming up this month. So yes. why don't you talk about how you, you know, figure out how do you taper for that while still training and how are you using that in your training? Okay. So, um, I'm super excited. I am running for the first time the Miami half marathon, which I know you've run before Lisa and you loved it. So I'm really excited to to try it myself and I'm meeting my best friend from college um, who lives in Chicago and we're going to make it a girls weekend. She's not running the race. So she'll um, order me breakfast. She'll be your Sherpa on Sunday. (laughs) Exactly. And um, I'm not really preparing specifically for the race, but what I am doing is I'm going to have a cutback week the week after the race and a little bit the week before the race. So while not specifically tapering, I'm certainly not going to do a 10-mile tempo run on Thursday before the run on Sunday, for example, but rather I'll do most of my runs easy the week before the half marathon, maybe have a a track workout or something like that that's um, race-specific for a half, maybe two times two miles at half marathon pace or something like that um, the Tuesday before the race. The race is on a Sunday. And then following the race, I'm going to take at least three days off from running. I'll cross train, but because I am a seasoned runner and a seasoned person, I am 46. Um, and I had to pause when I said that just now because <laughs> I'm at the point now where I forget I how know, old I am. Track. I lose track, but it's important because I think just having that one extra day of recovery after a tune-up race, even though it's not my goal race, I'm still going to race it and it's going to be taxing on my body. So recognizing that and taking the time I need to recover fully so I can jump back into training is really important. I know now from experience that I won't miss any time. It's not going to impact my primary goal race of Boston, but rather it's going to keep me a healthier runner. And the worst thing I can do is to try to jump back into my training the week after this half marathon, sort of ignoring the fact that I ran a race just because it's not my goal race. So that's that's what I do differently. And I'm just going to listen to my body. If I need to take a whole week off after the race, then I'll take a whole week off. It's early in the training cycle and it's, I'm not missing out on anything. And I just really, really want to stay healthy. Um, in terms of racing the race, I, I don't know how it's going to go. Cause back to weather, again, yep. if it's super hot, that's a challenge. We're not acclimated, but I'm certainly excited to, to give it a try and run in warmth and just have some fun and, and, um, 
do something new. Yeah, it's a fun race. So, it's a, it's um, a great race. I'll tell you a couple things. First of all, speaking mm-hmm. again back to weather, it's typically, I think, pretty warm. Obviously, it's Miami. Um, but the year I ran it was 50 and rainy. So it was it was, <gasps> it was a preview of, uh, of, you know, it was like the one cool day they had while I was down there and the one rainy day, of course. And um, just so you know, it starts – pretty early and the sun has not risen yet. So you're in the dark for the first, uh, I would say several, maybe two to three miles at least. And you go over a bridge. um, It's beautiful lit up at night, but it was a little, you know how it is to run an evening race or a race in the dark. It's a little disconcerting. So um, really a flat race uh, with the exception of the few little causeways or over, you know, overpasses that you go over. There's one larger bridge at the beginning and later on there's some smaller ones. Um, but it's a, okay. it's a flat race. It's really um, great crowds, really well run, uh, crowded. Like, so, you know, get into your corral early, but yeah, just keep in mind that it'll be dark for the beginning of it. So watch your, you know, just, just be prepared for that. And it, it's a little kind of throws people off sometimes to run in the dark, but it's beautiful to watch the sunrise. Hopefully you'll get the sun this year. Beautiful to watch the sunrise and just a really nice, uh, nice race, big race. So, and it's also, you know, there's a full and a half. So it, kind of feels good when you break off at the end and you're running the half and you can think okay well my marathon's coming but today today is not that day and I know when I ran it was pouring I thought I don't know if I could run another half marathon in this pouring rain and little did I know that not much longer that after that I would be doing exactly that but uh but it's a great race and you'll have fun but if you do you know the weather we're not running in that sort of weather so you'll have to see how it is yeah so um, well, thanks for those tips. It's super helpful. And, um, yeah, I'm super excited. So, um, also we wanted to remind people as we wrap up the intro to this podcast, we wanted to remind people that if anyone wants any guests or anything, um, to come on the podcast, please shoot us an email at Julie and Lisa at runfarthernfaster.com, or you can Facebook message or Instagram message us at run farther and faster. And we are super excited to have um, some guests already lined up for this uh, Boston Marathon Series podcast. So um, our first guest is going to be Ken Traumatori. Hi, Ken. Hi, Julie. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for joining us today. I'm happy to. We are super excited to welcome our dear friend, Ken Traumatori, to the second episode of our Run Farther and Faster podcast. And the reason we chose you, Ken, is because you really embody the Boston Marathon. Um, we, we're just going to brag about you for a second. You've run, what, almost 50, if not over 50 marathons? Something like that. Yeah, I'd have to look it up. You qualified for Boston in 2006 running your very first marathon. Would you, do you remember your time in 2006? Uh, 2.55. Okay. Chicago. So that's crazy that you not only BQ'd on your first marathon, but ran a sub three, first marathon, mm-hmm. way to set the bar high. And <laughs> so your first Boston was in 2007, and you have since run... 12 Bostons consecutively, and this year will be your lucky 13. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, well, welcome to the podcast. And we also love Ken because Ken always entertains us in Boston with his uh, unique uh, Boston uh, athlete village 
get up. So we always try to stay warm in Athletes Village, depending on the year. Uh, and oftentimes uh, we go to Goodwill stores or go through our donation piles of clothes because in Boston now, especially um, since 2013, whatever you bring to Hopkinton, you actually have to discard and leave there if you're not going to run with it. It used to be that we could check a bag in Hopkinton and it would meet us back in Boston so you could take all your warm-up gear and put it in a bag. Now we have to discard it so oftentimes runners will bring things that are you know discarded they're they're donated so they're collected and donated but we often go through our donate piles or goodwill and ken always comes up with um really great creative fishermen we've had a fisherman yeah i I think you know you should go into your own closet and pick stuff out but that's no fun so uh, sometimes (laughs) i go to goodwill and one year i accidentally bought julie's son's old clothes That I didn't know that, but I was kind of trying to put together this like basketball player, Chinese basketball player type outfit, and uh, I showed up, and Julie's like, "Where did you get that?" I said, "Oh, I got it at the Goodwill." She goes, "What size is it?" She's looking at it. She goes, "I'm pretty sure that was that was my son's," and he just gave it away a couple weeks ago. I loved your orange um, wetsuit. Yeah, yeah, that was the uh, inspired by the uh, lobster sexual movement. Yeah, the lumber sexual, and somebody somebody posted. Our friend Mike posted a, a picture saying that this is what I should dress up as. So I scoured the local uh, Goodwill and I found a, a bottom half of a wetsuit and some, you know, a nice sweater and hat and some heavy Kept gloves. Kept you warm. Yeah, mm-hmm. but I, I attempted to spray paint said wetsuit and that didn't work so well. You well, left, I remember you left orange marks on the bus seats. Yeah, so every, every, every so Ken often, was here. Yeah, every so often I still pull out shoes and there's flecks of paint and things like that. And uh, I can tell you, anybody who went to the porta-potties, uh, and saw orange paint on the on the ground of the port potties. Well, that's a good tip for later that we will talk about is gearing up for Athletes Village, depending on the weather. And um, but Ken always takes the cake, and we always look forward to that. I before we change the subject, my favorite um, attire that you wore was the year you bought like a full suit. Yeah, I was able to get I think a full suit for about twenty five dollars. <laughs> I had uh, you know I, <laughs> I had leather shoes and. Uh, you looked at me and said, oh, is that you say Sailor Ray? And I'm like, why, yes, you it say is. Sailor Ray? I, I, I paid a dollar for this shirt. So, yeah, so someone got that. I, I did look like uh, somebody who had borrowed their older cousin's suit because it was about three sizes I too remember. big. But. I just love whenever any of us show up uh, to board the buses in downtown Boston to get to Hopkinton. It just seems like all of us from the Montgomery County Roadrunners Club representing Montgomery County, Maryland, especially Ken, we all seem to sort of follow suit and each year we're all putting on like our best costumes mm-hmm. to ride the bus like Lisa and I yeah. for the past few years. Onesies. Onesies. <laughs> it's the best. They keep you warm. You just zip one up. You wear it over your running clothes. And um, of course, like the years we've had the best onesies, it it's seems been like warm. It's we been haven't warm. Needed. So I still have it in my closet. I have a unicorn onesie in my closet. So uh, it's ready for a, for a cool year, but a dry, a dry year. Last year, Julie and I uh, were very prepared. We saw the forecast for rain and I went online and found us uh, the motorcycle windsuits that we wore during uh, to keep us dry, and those were key. Those were awesome. Yeah. They were fantastic. We looked like the Gordons fishermen. We did. A lot of people yeah. use Tyvek suits, like painters Tyvek suits yep. too, and those worked yeah. really well. And quite a few people said, "I thought I was going to ditch this at mile two or three, and then ended up <laughs> they ran wearing it to like yeah. thirteen or fourteen. Yep. So yeah, it was fun. So okay, so let's start sort of from the beginning. You you are a, a very talented runner naturally. A, 
and just give us a brief history. Did you run when you were younger? I didn't run when I was younger. I was actually, uh, I guess you could call it sports averse. Um, I was always the smallest kid, so I, you know, was afraid to get hit by a ball and, um, you know, I couldn't play any football or anything like that, which probably in retrospect is a good thing. Um, so yeah, I really didn't, didn't do any sports. Um, kind of started running a little bit when I, uh, like in high school, just uh, to more or less do something. Uh, and then after college, I, you know, started running around my neighborhood uh, where I'd run like two or three miles. I was like, yeah, I'm a runner. I ran two miles today. And I'd go full bore as hard as I could, which I think is pretty common for people that, you know, have done other sports. It's always like, go hard as you can, as long as you can. And that makes you stronger. And uh, it wasn't until I joined a first time marathon program that I realized that you have to run slower to get faster. And uh, that made a huge difference. Well, let's go back. What made you decide to start to run in the first place? Really just for health, just because, you know, I wanted to stay in shape. You know, I bought, uh, you know, I saw those Nike shocks that uh, looked really awesome with the big springs at the back. So I said, hey, I should get some of these and, and start running. Um, but it was really just to try to try to stay in shape. And then mm -hmm. I decided a bucket list thing was to run a 10K. And I ran one of those in, you know, big Chicago Bears sweatpants and a T-shirt. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that went that went fairly well. I was like, well, that was kind of fun. Let me let me start doing a few more of these. So I did some 10Ks, and then I said, well, let me let me look at this marathon, first time marathoners program, and uh, joined that. My first year, I ramped up my mileage way too quick and uh, got a quick stress fracture and that knocked me out. That was 2005. So I came back. Took me about six months to recover from that, and then came back in 2006 and trained trained the right way. Ramped up slowly and then up having a really good Chicago in 2006. How did you, did you know during that first training cycle when you were running the Montgomery County Roadrunners first time marathon program, generally people who come through that program are running just to finish. Did you know that you had a sub three in you? Because again, that's very unusual to do that kind of training program and 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 come out with a sub three so the times that i had submitted just again doing these run around 10ks were were fairly decent times so i got placed in the group uh, you know i didn't know what i i didn't really know what boston was i didn't really know anything about marathons um when i started running they were like we're running 815s and i was like what do you mean 815s like how many miles per hour is that because that was my mm -hmm. point of reference right was running occasionally on a treadmill or, or trying to figure out you know using math before gps's um you know not even wearing you know athletic gear so chafing and stuff was, was things <laughs> that i learned about pretty quick um but i did get placed in one of the faster groups and a lot of the people in that group were telling me oh you might qualify for boston on your first run i said well what do you mean this qualify for boston again i was completely naive um as things went on, my race times indicated that I could probably do it. My goal time at that point was 310 to try to get into it. And I started running, got into the race. I think I was shooting more for a 305, talked to a lot of the coaches. They said, this is what you should go for. And the miles started clicking off and kept telling myself, slow down, slow down, you're going too fast. Um, and just kept getting progressively faster. I was waiting for that wall at 18 and looked around me and I saw a lot of people with really good running gear and looked like they had been running for you know 20 years and they were falling off and I kept looking down at my watch and going I feel pretty good and my times were getting faster and I actually finished with a negative split and wow. had a really really amazing race I, and I definitely think I'm the, the more of an outlier I, I don't think many people first time that are anything like that no you're definitely an outlier but I I, I think from what I know about you is that probably that experience in that race was transformative for you because 
tell us a little bit about what you do now for the running community and, and how you went from being a, I'm going to try out these Nikes, to running a 255, and then how that changed you. And 50 marathons later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 50 marathons. Um, so I, I think I, I really actually enjoy seeing people have really good marathons. Um, marathon, in my opinion, is just the strong execution of a plan. If you go out, and for first-timers, this is hard to, hard to understand, it's not like a 10K where you're gonna slow down at the end, but you can kind of muscle through it and you can mentally get over it. If you don't stick to your plan in the marathon, your body breaks in a way that you just can't recover. You're breathing fine, you may be completely conscious of what's going on around you, but your body just says, we're not going any faster. And that's hard to convey to someone who hasn't lived it. So the thing that I like to talk to people about is let's, let's get a really good plan down for you. Let's figure out based on your current race times, based on what we know of maybe some of your, your long runs, how do you feel at the end of a long run? Are you a negative split type runner? Are you a, a distance runner? I firmly believe some people are more genetically gifted to distance than to speed. Um, so trying to figure out if we can push people a little bit more. Uh, with first time marathoners, I always think it's better to have a good experience off the bat and then later on push for speed and, and, and go for marathons that break you essentially, find out where that breaking point is and then back it off a little on the next one. Uh, but I love to see people have great marathons. I love to see negative splits. I love to see even races. I love to watch from home on the computer and see that you know, you're getting faster at the end. That's just, that means someone's having a good day and is going to be really proud of their performance. How do you plan for your marathons? Do you come up with a pacing plan? Do you, yeah. how, you know, write them on your arm? How do you, how do you personally plan for your races? Yeah, so I, I definitely, if I'm really trying to figure out what I'm going to do, it's, it's usually a couple of races beforehand, um, taking into account what the weather is on those races, what the course was, and coming up with a relatively safe number. And it depends on if I'm going for broke or if I'm going for a positive experience. And then use some of the running calculators uh, on there to predict what my pace should be or what I should be shooting for. And then basically target that. And then it's just probably everything that your runners hear on a regular basis, which is, you know, go out, go out slow. Um, your watch is not a definitive, your GPS watch isn't a definitive timer or a, a, a pace coach, but it's a great tool. Um, it's always going to be off. I'm a big fan of turning off auto lap because I always feel that that messes you up and manually lapping every lap. For every mile. So for those listening, what, what Ken means is with respect to Autolap is basically it's better to use the, the time on the clocks while you're mm-hmm. racing and every time you pass a mile marker, then you are you manually press your watch versus allowing the Garmin to sort of dictate what your overall pace is. And that is because, and we'll talk about this later in our podcast, tangents. Mm-hmm. And so that's why um, when we all run marathons, uh, it won't necessarily be 26.2. It may be 26.4, mm-hmm. 26.5. That's what shows up on your watch. The only distance that matters is the measured course which is always 26.2 right and and actually measure the course is a little bit long because they never want to have something happen like maybe someone breaks a world record and then come to find out that they measured the course right but if you're if you're relying on your auto lap which is marking every mile by the gps you're going to be underestimating oh, or yeah. overestimating. You're going to be thinking you're running a particular pace and then you get to 26.2 in your watch, but you're not done. You're not at the finish line, oh, yes. so you're going to add it's, some extra time. It's always fun to, to be in a marathon. And, and first mile, just before that mile mark, you hear all the auto laps going off. And everyone says, this course is marked incorrectly. That's not right. And then 
the next mile marker, it's even sooner. The next yep. mile marker, it's even sooner. And you got all these people that are like, well, my Garmin said that I was right on pace and everything was perfect. So this course was wrong. It's like, your Garmin doesn't matter at the end of the day. It's right. only what the, the race director has measured out. So, but yeah, going out slow and, uh, you know, being even a little slow at the half. Uh, you know, if, if you're running a smart race and you're sticking to your plan, you may be a you know 30 seconds slow, and then that second half is when your body should be kicking in, you know, burning that fat for fuel, and you should be feeling pretty decent after that second half if you're if you're fueling correctly and you've trained right. And just negative splits, I, I think they say there's never been a world record set with a with a positive split that it's almost always a negative split. And and I can say firsthand because um, Ken and I have run a few Boston's together, and that's because when you're having a season where you're running more for fun, your fun pace is closer to my race pace. So we've um, together run a few Boston's and it's always been so much fun, but you're really, really disciplined the first half of a race, even when you personally aren't running it necessarily to get your sub three goal or whatever your goal is for that season, but rather just a sustainable goal that's comfortable. You still are very intent on negative, on negative splitting. And I think um, it comes from a lot of practice, but I think you have a lot of belief in it. Mm -hmm. And what we see a lot with our runners and, is that sometimes people can't trust that negative mm -hmm. split. It is very unnerving when you start a race and you have to hold back for 13 miles. That's, that's weird. Yeah. And so um, with respect to training, do you do anything personally with your training for Boston or any of your other marathons to sort of practice that negative split? Is there anything that you put into practice? I, I don't anymore simply because I've run so many marathons like that mm -hmm. and it, it's just such a such a better experience mm -hmm. when, when that second half or sometimes that second 10 miles, you can really really start rocking it. Mm -hmm. You know, when you, you feel great and you start picking other people off, you know, I always am like, look at that guy, that person, that your lunch, you're next. Mm -hmm. um, and when I run with other people or I jump in, you know, for, for a couple of miles, I'm like, let's go get that person, let's go get them. And if they're executing their plan, it's it's a great feeling. So, you know, you just need to have one negative split and then you're completely, completely in. Um, then you know that, hey, this is the way that these things need to be run. Definitely. My, my, one of my only negative split races actually was with you. It was a couple of years ago. It was, um, 2017 uh, and I don't know I think it was a little bit hot in 2017 yeah, <laughs> and we started out pretty conservatively because we just assumed that it would the temperature would continue to rise but it ended up sort of evening out and it didn't get too much hard, hotter than what was at the start and we we kind of we were able to pick it up yeah. and it was the most fun I've ever had at a Boston race that last six miles because it was comfortable and it, it really, I didn't feel as winded. I mean, granted it was super hard. It always is, but I didn't feel as winded as I have in the past when I was really pushing the red line. Well, it's a big psychological boost when you pass people. I mean, if yeah. you, if you get in the later miles and you just see people breaking left and right and, and walking and sometimes vomiting or whatever. Well, like, I mean, that's not, we don't want that for people. Yeah, but, no, like, no, no. Yeah. But, but, but when you're having a good day, like I said, that, and I had that my first Chicago, Boost your confidence, I, I was you looking know. around at these people that were obviously experienced mm -hmm. runners and I was like, I'm still feeling pretty good. Mm -hmm. and, and then you start picking it up and yeah, it's, it's a very, 
it's a great experience. Yeah, I had a similar experience. I remember with um, Lee Firestone, one of our friends, local runner, also a great podiatrist, and the year, the hot year. Hot year, 2012. Yes, the super hot year, and, you know, we both went back a couple corrals and said we were just going to start nice and easy, and I personally, Julie and I, both like running in warm weather, but I knew, you know, that was hot weather. That was, we had to be smart about adapting our, our, our goals, and we started out nice and easy, and it felt so weird because people were passing us. You know, you feel panicky at the beginning of a race where people are passing you um, but that was the race I finished the strongest it was I felt great to the end of that race and that really taught me after that race that really and we see that with our runners it's a big challenge because you know what people think and our runners other runners they think well I'm just gonna build myself a 20 second or 30 second per mile cushion and if you think about that you do that for the first 10 miles maybe you build up a five minute cushion but if that was 30 seconds faster than your body's prepared to run and you have you cramp up and you have to walk in the second half you're gonna lose many more oh, than yeah. five minutes and you just tanked your whole race. So it's very hard for people to understand that. So that's how we usually try to put it is like, look, okay, great. You build 30 seconds per mile in the first 13 miles. Maybe you gain seven or eight minutes. If you have to walk a mile later, you've lost it all. So let's keep it conservative. I think someone said that's the bank you can't withdraw from. When yes, you put, when I love you put that. time in that bank, you're not yeah. going to get it back. Exactly. So you brought up 2012. 2012 was the only year that um, we run Boston since we, we all started running the race. Well, Ken and I both started in 2007. You started it in 2001. But that was the first time in, in recent memory where you, the race officials gave us the choice mm-hmm. as to whether we wanted to run it that year or defer it because they were so concerned um, that people would have heat stroke. Or, it was or 86 issues. degrees. That's I mean, that's, it's not like it was a 70 degree day. No. Well, that, that's the whole thing about Boston, right? A lot of people really try to target Boston. I say, you know, you, you maybe have a 35, 40% chance of that being a good day. You have a much higher chance. And in my experience, you know, it seems like the Bostons all have, have a name, right? The nor'easter year, the, <laughs> the, the super nor'easter year, the a hot year, the, hot year right. the super hot year, the cold That's year, what we said year. earlier is that the weather is always a big wild card at Boston. And that's a good question then to maybe if you want to talk a little bit about how do you account for weather? How do you adapt? How do you personally, do you then find another, you know, if your target race, the weather just doesn't work out, what do you, do you think about finding another? What do you do about that? Yeah. So, you know, that that's come up for me once or twice where I, I needed to qualify at Boston. You know, I didn't have another race and I knew I'd have to register in August and yeah, being halfway down the course, I'm thinking, oh man, I got to try to find something next month and, and go try to qualify somewhere else. And it's going to be even hotter. Um, so I haven't really been in a position where I've had to go somewhere else uh, to, to get a race. But I, I tell people, you know, you just got to, you kind of got to let it go, right? And that's, unfortunately, that's marathoning in general. If you're so dependent on the weather, um, you know, if you have a really bad day, fun run it and think about something else. Don't, don't put all your energy down. I, I talked to one of the guys last year who had, you know, hypothermia because of the weather. And he said it took him like three or four months. Mm-hmm. He said he was knocked down so hard from that that it took him a real long time to recover. So, you know, just run it really smart and uh, prepare for another day. And, and what did you do in 2012 to run it for fun? <laughs> So, so I'm pretty sure this is the year Brad and I, uh, we were attempting to break three, or my friend Brad wanted to break three, and we got up there, and, and we're sitting in the shadows of the porta-potties, and we're sweating in the shadows, and uh, there's definitely something to be said for heat acclimation. I, I think that is very um, undervalued. Um, it, that first run that you have when it gets warm and your legs are like lead and you're like, something's wrong, I, I'm sick. It's not that, it's your body. It takes time for your body to build the extra blood uh, for heat acclimation. 
and our run before that, I think, was a 35-degree one, our yeah. last long run. And we got up there, and it was, I think, 72, 75 degrees and, and sun. And everyone's just sweating. And uh, We were sweating so much in Hopkinton. We all wrote our numbers mm-hmm. on our arms with yeah. Sharpies, and it was mel- they were melting. Yeah, yeah. it was yeah. just, it was it Well, dialing sticking. back, remember, Julie, you know, and, and it was funny, you know, People always ask about the weather forecast for any race, but for Boston, you know, start looking 10 days in advance and what's the weather going to be. And I still remember that year I looked 10 days in advance and it said it was going to be 35 and freezing rain or, or snow. And, and it turned. So that just shows how inaccurate uh, those 10 day forecasts are. But we were in the middle then of having weather that was like that. And we got up to Boston and realized how warm it was going to be. And Julie and I sitting in every convenience store we could find stocking up on uh, coconut water and Gatorades and anything we could possibly find. I remember I went out and bought a white um, tank because mm-hmm. I had had brought a black short sleeve yeah. shirt to wear, so I went out and bought a white. So we were all scrambling at the last minute to adapt for that. Yeah, you, and that's that's what often happens. So yeah, switching to a white shirt makes a big difference. Um, and one of the things people say was, well, I'll just, you know, I know the first part of the course, it's on country roads, I'll run in the shade. Boston in April, there's no leaves on the trees, so there is no shade. That's right. So what do you and Brad do for that race? What so, happened? So we got about a mile in, and we said, "Yeah, that three hours isn't going to happen, so let's start drinking." So, <laughs> so you pass the biker bar right up front, and and those guys are great. You know, they're out there in their leather, and they're playing. That's in, um, I think that's in Ashland, the biker bar, yeah. right? I think so. Yeah, yeah. it's pretty it's early on. Yeah. So, so we ran by, and they're all drinking, and I, I said, "Hey, you guys got one of those for me?" And they said, "Yeah, sure, great, no problem." And so you know, we grab a beer and. We had our phones with us because, you know, we knew it was going to probably be a pretty bad day. And, you know, we're taking pictures on the side of the road drinking beers. So I think I had, <laughs> we think we split two beers on the way down. Not a lot, but it was kind of more for pictures. And we turned it into, again, we turned it into a fun run. What happened in Wellesley? Uh, we did we did the normal Wellesley Okay. Thing. Yeah, we didn't, like, spend extra time mm-hmm. there. Um, but uh, we drank there. I'm trying to remember somewhere else. Yeah, it's not uncommon for me to grab a beer from a, from a bystander, mm-hmm. uh, you know. One year, I grabbed one from a lady. She, I think she thought she was being funny. She mm-hmm. had like a little bottle and like Dixie cups, and mm-hmm. she's like, "I got beer here. Who wants a beer?" And I ran back. I said, "I'll take one." And she's and she handed me the Dixie mm-hmm. cup, and I grabbed the bottle. She goes, <laughs> and she goes, oh my gosh, she took the whole thing. <laughs> and, uh, so and we passed up Boston Cop, and he's like, "Good job, buddy. Good job." So yeah, that was um, that year. While it was really tough and, and uncomfortable and it was such a bonding experience a in year. 2012. Well, you know what, everyone let Boston go of their, general. yeah, but that year especially, everybody let go of their expectations. I remember the start line was so chill. Everybody was chill. Normally no. the start line is pretty intense mm-hmm. and everyone's in their own head and they're really, um, you know, it's just intense. And that year everyone was like, kumbaya. It was, <laughs> yeah, let's, totally. we're just going to go out there and run through the sprinklers. It was really a neat, it, it was actually one of my favorite years, but not only because I like running in the warm weather, but just because of the added, the, the spirit, you know, everybody was out with their, their sprinklers and handing out beer or, you know, or hydration. It was a fun year. And, and every year has usually some sort of vibe, right? So yeah. I always say the, the most boring marathon stories are the ones that say, I ran the race, I got the exact time I wanted, and it was easy. Yeah. Um, the best stories are the ones that have some sort of, some sort of background, some sort of bonding. It, again, the hot year. This year, with it being freezing, Julie, you know, having a complete break. Down, <laughs> having to be like, all right, buddy, come on, let's let's keep going, let's yeah, keep going. Yeah, that was. But then at the end, she was like princess. She had her little tiara on and, and was <laughs> over run, the ear running down Boylston like full throttle. I'm like, oh man, I, I'm dying here. I'm trying to keep up with her, but yeah, every yeah, year that is... was a tough year. We this year especially, I was, I mean, I I wrote about this. I was so grateful to have a buddy, and I kept saying thanks for running with me, and then you kept saying thanks for running with me. I mean, we were. 
everyone was miserable, but it's, it's just fun. It was fun, but um, I think the year that really, obviously, was the the hardest was um, 2013. Mm-hmm. We were all there in 2013, and we were all together. And um, you want to talk a little about that? Yeah. So of course, that was the tragic bombing year. Um, you know, I, I don't even remember. I think the weather was decent. I don't even remember specifically. Um, but it was nice. It was a nice. I remember yeah. it was it was a nice year. It was sunny and uh, mild. It was, it was a good year. Yeah. But and who remembers the weather? You're right. Yeah. Nobody no, really yeah. remembers the weather. Because we we always meet in the bar afterwards. We meet at uh, um, Fire Nice. Fire Nice, <laughs> right? It's our go-to place with a bunch of other runners. And I just remember Brian Kim coming in and said, "I I just heard two explosions. I was pretty sure they were bombs." And uh, so we asked the the bartender to switch over to you know the news stations, and they were still playing their regular broadcasting for about a minute, minute and a half, and then everything just lit up, and they started getting all the reports coming in. And um, I had my camera with me, and I I, I took some pictures, and, and it wasn't to be disrespectful, but just to remember. And one of my pictures that's seared in my brain is is Julie, um, just you could see she was just in absolute tears because she didn't know where her family was. I didn't know if they were, you know, at the at the finish line. Um, so there was a lot of unknowns. Um, Facebook was still relatively new, so I, I started telling people, get on your Facebook and just update your status to, I'm in Boston, I'm safe, um, I'm not affected. Jenny did, your wife, Jenny, did that for all of us. She yeah. had the, she had the <clears throat> presence of mind to put up a status where she listed and tagged every single person in the bar, and that ended up providing for so many people back home, tremendous relief. I don't even know if she realized the impact of that post and yeah. her doing that for all of us. Well, we couldn't, we didn't have the access. Cell, cell once, service started Yeah, after that, quick, you yeah. know, I had left the bar from you guys at three o'clock because I knew I had to get back to my hotel to get showered, to get to the, the airport. And so I had to leave at three and it happened just minutes before three. And I, you know, we didn't hear anything in the bar. At least I didn't mm-hmm, really yeah. recollect. And I had left and you know, turn left out of the bar and started heading away from the finish line. And that's when all the sirens came. And my dad had just called me on my cell to ask how my race went. And, and he heard all the sirens. He said, what is going on there? And I said, somebody must have gotten hurt at the finish line. I thought in my head somebody yeah. had a heart attack at the finish line. Mm-hmm. And we got off the phone. And as soon as I got off the phone with him, uh, a woman next to me said, did you hear it? And I said, hear what? And she said, the explosions. And I said, no. And then I realized something was going on. And I went to go call my parents back. And um, I did get through that time. I got through to my mom and said, I don't know what's going on here, but uh, I just want you to know I'm safe. And she turned on CNN and same thing. She said, no, it's just normal programming. And then 30 seconds later said, wait, special report from Boston. She was reading it to me and I said, well, I better go and call my husband and let him know that I'm okay. And by then I couldn't, the phones didn't work and it was only text. And I also got on Facebook and put up that I had been with certain people that you know were had finished. Um, but that was that was really surreal. Yeah, and then all night, you know, hearing the sirens and the distance, just just the number of unmarked vehicles that kind of swarmed we, the city. We stayed. I I was supposed to leave that night, but I missed my flight, so I stayed in a room with you and Jenny. And you guys had a hotel room at the DoubleTree, which happened to be across the street from the hospital. So mm-hmm. it was all night, and um, it was really surreal. Yeah. Just the whole thing, and. Um, All the restaurants closed. Terrible. It was. Um, they're they're really. It continues when when. I mean, it's been almost six years, and it it will never be something that in my brain I can normalize. I still when I think about it, it's like how how. 
I hear sirens now. And when I hear sirens, this is that scene when I left and all those sirens, and I hear sirens at like, six years later, it's still, that's what I think about as soon as I hear sirens is I have a little bit of a panic. Just that that time in the bar is kind of seared in. uh, to me, like mm-hmm. 9-11, like the space shuttle exploding, those kinds yeah. of Something big you'll never forget. just because, yeah. yeah, it was so impactful. But I think on a happier note, um, you know, I think it all, it really motivated all of us. I know I thought that year, that year was my 10th running of Boston, and I kind of thought in the back of my head, well, 10's a good number. Mm-hmm. I can end on 10. I think I'm kind of past the, you know, maybe next year I'll find something else to do in the spring. And I left there, and I said, there's no way I can leave on this note. And I think that the following year, to me, was such... That stands out in my mind too as wow, like Boston Strong, really. Yeah. I mean, if you could even double the the spectators on the course and Meb winning, and you know, just that year was such along the opposite end of the spectrum, something that really brought everybody back. Well, and that, and I got to say, Boston did a great job of of minimizing the impact. You know, so there was additional security. You know, when you at, up at the start line up at Hopkinton, you saw guys up on the roofs, saw spotters. Um, so there's definitely a, a bigger law enforcement presence, but it didn't it didn't dampen the experience. There wasn't, you know, extreme security, right? That made it made it something that you didn't want to do. It was still the same Boston, um, with just a little bit of extra extra support and extra law enforcement out there. So it kept the spirit of the of the whole race, and and that hasn't changed at all. It is interesting though to compare pre 2013 Boston logistics mm-hmm. to post 2013 now, where we can't you know, we can't check bags at Hopkinton. We have to discard everything. Uh, the bag check, the pickup for a while was even farther from the finish. I remember yeah. the, you know, the year. Yeah, yeah the one year it was out on the green. Yeah, and, and, and it rained that year. And we had to walk an extra like half mile to get our gear. And so <sighs> it's just been, uh, it's, it's interesting to try to explain to people who do it now, who never did it before, that it's a little bit different than, than when well, we used to do it. I think that's one nice thing about Boston too, is you have, as, as you return year after year, you see the evolution of the race. So I think the 2007 was either the first or second year they went to the 10 a.m. start. Yes, yeah. Because people was, before that, it was a 12 o'clock yep. start. So if you had a and hot one day- And one wave, one wave. <laughs> yeah, yeah, if you had a hot day, it was a really hot day. Um, so it's evolved that way, you know, some of the stuff with the logistics have, have changed, uh, but the spirit of the race. I and the registration has certainly, I had mentioned earlier that well, yeah, you used that, to be able to register whole... up until right before, mm-hmm. as long as you qualified, you could register. And, you know, related to that, I, you've done now 12 consecutive Bostons. Why don't you talk a little bit about what happens when you get to 10 consecutive Boston marathons? So at 10, yeah. So the, the nice thing is we get to register with the, the base time. So we don't have to worry about that two minutes, three minutes, this year, you know, almost five minutes under. So we get to register in August. And uh, again, we just have to have the minimum qualifying time for our age. So that makes your qualifying marathon easier because you know exactly what you have to hit. You're not, uh, should I go three minutes under, four minutes under, what should I do this year? Uh, And I think that's gonna be really hard for people, you know, for the 2020 Boston, you know, who are gonna qualify in 2019 is, how much under do I need to go? Even, yeah, even, even with the adjustment. Even with a five-minute adjustment, do you still need another minute and a half below that? We we definitely try and coach our runners who are trying to be cute. We definitely are. We try to make their target um, marathon pace miles such that it is a five-minute buffer, just yeah. in case. Um, it's just devastating for people when they work that hard. They achieve the BQ and they are not accepted it's it's just it's so upsetting and with a five minute drop is it still going to be another you know five minutes and that's a lot of time Uh, three minutes in a marathon that can be the difference between 
having a positive experience and again having a having a flame out and back to your original comments we were talking about earlier another reason to really aim for a negative split mm-hmm. because you are um, setting yourself up for success. So as, as we're starting to wrap up, we just wanted to ask you, um, for those who are training for Boston, we're now in week, officially week two or three of people's training. The race is um, 13, 13 weeks away. What do you recommend people, what are some critical, three, let's do three critical things that you think people should do to prepare and train for Boston? Of course, get your mileage up. Uh, you know, coming off what I would call decadence December with the holidays and everything, <laughs> oh, that, you know, that's exactly right. a couple extra pounds and, and probably not running as much. Uh, definitely try to get the miles up uh, and follow the, the general rules, right? Ramp up slowly. Don't try to, you know, jump your miles as quickly as you can. Um, start getting in those long runs because they're definitely critical on your, uh, on your training program. Um, find your friends, you know, get your, have that accountability. I think that's critical to getting all your runs in. Um, I don't know if I can come up with three super critical things this early, but the long runs and then just building your miles. Um, speed work probably isn't quite as important this early on because you're not quite sharpening yet, but uh, putting a couple fast miles in there probably won't hurt either. Well, Ken, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure talking oh, with you as always. So always we hope you'll fun, come back. Always have fun talking about uh, talking about Boston and racing. Yeah, we're excited Things to like see that. what you're going to wear in Athletes Village this year. You know, so start I, planning. I, That's your other tip. Start planning your yeah, Start I, planning your year. I wish I could say that I start planning really early, but it's usually Spare like the two, moment. two days before. I'm like, let me go to Goodwill and see what they got. Yeah, well, we'll all be looking for you, and we'll all be looking out. We'll be sure to get some pictures. Yeah. Thank, thank you, Ken. No problem. Thanks.